Hey everyone, it is a down to brown time. I had a different episode that I had planned today, which was going to be about family trauma and healing, which I am actually very proud of. I recorded it with my friend Shruti, um, but it felt like given this week and the elections and the um, consequential anxiety around it it just felt like we were traumatized enough and that I would avoid talking about family trauma when we're dealing with this trauma so that being said instead we switched uh, my friend and I Nisha Devedi and I are talking about colonized minds so you might be wondering what that means What I mean by colonized minds is essentially the definition of colonization, which is to take someone else's place as your own and doing that to our mental state and space, which sometimes happens when you are sharing two identities. You might be part of a larger majority group and you're trying to find your place in it. Um, specifically since this is a conversation that we talk about from the lens of the Indian American experience, a quick one-on-one history lesson for you. So cue trombone music. Um, India was its own rock and civilization. It had its own conquering going on between, um, neighboring countries and lands, um, You fast forward to sort of contemporary last couple centuries and um, it started to become discovered and gradually it became colonized by one primary group, the British. And also there were other folks like French, Spanish, Portuguese, which fun fact, did you know there is a town in Tamil Nadu that is called Pondicherry that is French speaking and Tamilian speaking? Like you would have never known. So anyway, gradually this was not becoming okay with the population and after many years of brewing tension, violence, deaths, etc., the revolution happened and you see this independence that India gains from the British Empire in 1947. I actually remember this very clearly. I will never forget the year because when there were these two years that my parents moved me to India, I was... In second and third grade, and I was taking an entrance exam to get into the school. And in that office while I was taking it, I kept looking up to think, and there was this framed thing that had celebrating Independence Day 50 years, 1947. And I was taking it in 1997. Um, And that forever was seared in my brain because I was actually, first of all, just shocked that the number was a nine and not a six in the sense that is so freaking recent 1947 it's only been about 70 years um and so that in itself tells you a lot about where india is today and on top of that add the fact that you also have the start of these generations of indians immigrating to different parts of the world and in this podcast focus to the united states especially the second chunk of the 1900s Um, But you start to see that like while Indians are figuring out their own shit in their country, recovering from independence and being split into two, India and Pakistan, um, then you also have people coming to different countries and figuring out that whole spiel. Simultaneously, India is also reclaiming a lot of things that became unrecognizable. So, for example, People might remember the city Bombay, but Bombay is actually not the name for that city. It's actually Mumbai, which is what Indians would call it before British came and said, 
I have no idea how to keep saying Mumbai. Let me just call it something easier, Bombay. So the point I'm trying to make is that there are simultaneous individuations going for Indian Americans, Indian Indians, um, other immigrants for India, because the country itself was finding its identity in a different way once the British rule left. And I think this leaves things ripe for a lot of psychological discussion and analysis, which is why we're here in Down to Brown. I'm going to be talking to my friend Nisha, who I actually, she's a new friend of mine. We met because she knows my now fiance and we used to hang out in the same groups. And I just knew her as this like really hot, intelligent, witty, um, sassy chick and admired her from afar. And eventually when everything was happening this summer with the George Floyd murder and people were posting more about race, I remember just feeling like everything she shared and said, I really connected with me. And I think I think it was somewhat mutual because we started to talk more and we became friends through DMs. So classic case of sliding into DMs. Um, now we're here where we started to hang out. She asked me out on a friend date um, and we started to become closer friends. And it's always a joy to meet new girlfriends. Um, and I don't often meet new Indian girlfriends. So I'm super grateful that I have a chance to get to know her better in this space. Nisha, it's so lovely to have you here today. Hi, I'm happy to be here. It's a couple days after the election ended, so it's a strange time, but it's nice to be talking to someone about it. (laughs) Girl, tell me about it. It has been quite the few days. I'm really happy to be able to process some of this with you. So given all the anxiety, nerves, everything, all of the feels, how are you doing? Yeah, I would say, I mean, it's it's a couple days past and we're still waiting and I tried to abide by what most people were saying and that we weren't going to get the instant gratification we're also used to. So I had been working at a polling place for the four days that voting was um, in person in California and so that was a really nice distraction and was also just great to actually be around excited voters um, and to have that injection of energy. I think the day after I took off from work and did a bunch of things just to keep myself busy, I ended up watching Homecoming on Netflix to get some good Beyonce inspiration and that was really nice. So I think I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic, but I think 2016 just really prevents you from feeling any real positivity. Yeah, because we've been burned. I mean, yesterday I pulled a millennial and took a mental health day. Um, It was incredibly helpful and it helped me show up much more sanely today. One thing you mentioned, the cautiously optimistic. I've been also hearing nauseously optimistic, which is probably everyone's just like physical manifestation of the stress. And this year has already been so much long term gratuity that it's really hard to think of. There's one more thing that we need to wait for. But I am impressed. I mean, we're hanging in there. And I will say the one thing that I'm so excited to see is that I've never really experienced an election where we gave this many fucks as a generation like 
people are following this. Like we are counting number of votes, percentage counted in different states. Like I have never paid attention to this level or talked in this much detail. So it really, I don't know, there's one silver lining. Maybe it's too soon, but it gives me a sense of unity that I haven't felt before during elections. Yeah, it's been really interesting to just see how involved people really are. I think there's, at least over the last day or so, I think you're also just seeing a range of reactions from different groups. And obviously, we'll we'll talk a little bit more about why that potentially could be the case. But at least for speaking personally, I feel a lot more prepared this time around to deal with whatever happens, primarily because I'm not surprised. I think a lot of people are saying, you know, I didn't think it would be this close or I hoped it would be better. And I think we're just sort of seeing maybe for the first time, second time, the reality of how people feel is actually being reflected in the electorate and people who are showing up to vote. And for a really long time, a lot of people didn't show up and do that. So even if it's bad, you can't deny that there are really differing perspectives in America today. And it's not just this rosy picture of a you know, rebuke of the last four years, that's very much so not the case. And while that's incredibly disheartening and frustrating, it's not surprising. And I think that's the biggest difference that I'm feeling is I don't like the reality. It's not <laughs> incredibly inspiring, frankly, but it wasn't a surprise. I mean, yo, of course, I, this election especially really helps you see what people are prioritizing, um, who people are prioritizing. And in all of this, especially these few days, I've been so fucking nervous and anxious that I haven't even been able to appreciate the fact that our first Indian black woman has been nominated for vice president and that she might actually become vice president. I remember seeing her in the Oakland Plaza on day one when she announced her presidential campaign and what a feeling that was. And now, you know, you see her as the VP nominee and she's in her debates and she's phenomenal. I cannot wait, but it's been a little lost um, given the last few days, um, being able to really sit in that joy. Yeah, I think it's sort of gotten lost in the hubbub of the last few days that if hopefully they do win, that it still is this really historic moment for a lot of people who have never seen a Black or Indian person in the highest levels of government consistently and that still is really exciting it just feels sort of muted in the last couple days while we're all just waiting with bated breath to make sure that there even is something that we're able to celebrate at the highest levels but I hope that once we round the corner that we're a little bit more equipped to process that progress and how monumental it truly is despite the fact that almost half of voters in America did not want to see that happen, which to your point, I think is, is really disappointing. Yeah, definitely. And I know there's, we can't, I don't want to jump ahead because we're just trying to get through these 
counts um, from certain states who seem to be taking their sweet time. But if we can get through this and let's say Biden wins, what would a Kamala Harris win mean to you? I think overwhelmingly what I hope it represents is just the beginning. I know we've talked a lot about this and how there aren't many choices for us to align with. And I sort of felt this rewatching the Mindy Project over the pandemic. I don't really like that show, I realized, but I wanted to rewatch it. But she, in her character in that show doesn't really represent me. We're, we don't have a lot in common, but I feel bad not supporting it because it's the only one we've got and so for me I think what having Kamala ultimately in the White House would represent is just the beginning there are going to be as was true with the Obama administration she's going to be held to a higher standard than anyone else who's ever held that position because of who she is because she's different because she's the first and we all know how incredibly unfair that is and she's going to make decisions and have influence that maybe we all don't agree with i think what we're seeing is that increasingly everyone's understanding the asian vote isn't a monolith the black vote isn't a monolith and it's okay if we disagree with some of the things that this administration potentially does but it's also okay to celebrate the success for what it is and hopefully we can ride that change into more change and amplify that over every election to come at every level. But it's hard to argue that representation doesn't matter. It does. Absolutely. However, it also makes me really nervous because to your point, once you have that one person representing it puts a lot of pressure and I'm a little scared. What if she does make a mistake? Because God forbid she's human. Then what are people going to say? Is she going to be held to the same standards as a man, as a white man? Yeah, it's a I don't envy her in the slightest. You're sort of damned if you do and damned if you don't. But I hope that especially the communities that she really represents do understand that we get one shot and we often rise to that occasion and over deliver and things go well but to be a bit more empathetic and understanding of when that doesn't and try and put that next to you know the the failures of a lot of other folks who have been in that position that it doesn't condemn you um and that there is still a lot of good and progress that's being made someone i was working with during the election said to me uh, they they met with a voter who didn't vote for Hillary. She was a woman, and she her argument was, you know, women are too emotional, and and this that and the other thing, all the typical tropes. And I don't want her to have the power to bring the U.S. into war. And the comment that this woman made to that person was, well, every war so far has been started and ended by men women didn't start all of those wars and the woman was just sort of I guess put on her back foot and of course found another reason to to not want to vote for her but I think we just forget that um 
there are fair and equal standards and expectations we are allowed to have as citizens here of our representatives and to demand better consistently. But consistently, I think, is the piece that has missed for all time as we hold different people to different standards in that. So when we say colonized minds, what we're referring to is the definition of colonization, which is to come and settle among and establish political control over the native or indigenous people of that area. And the reason why we opened even with the elections is, A, it's like, what else can you think about right now? But also because it really helps us kind of ground where we are today and the frustration we feel as a result of what's going on. Yeah, it's a really interesting thing, I think, for Indian Americans in particular to really think about and likely is true for Pakistani Americans, too, who were impacted by the end of and I'm air quoting the end of formal, I guess, colonization within India was only in the 40s. Um, And so that's not very long ago. My family, you know, was in India at that time, my grandparents, and were impacted by the decisions made there. And, And so I think it's hard to fully decouple what happened in that experience from the American experience and knowing and learning so much about, even though America too was technically under control and overthrew the British as well, we're not in the same position because of so much of the history that is ingrained based on race in America that we now are sort of funneled into in current day. So we're not white, obviously. We're not black, obviously. And so where do we really fit in? I think it's been really hard for at least us to figure out where we fit in that dialogue and how does our history influence how we think about that. Absolutely. And when you said that your family was there, are you referring to the partition of Pakistan and India? Yeah, on my the mo- my mom's side, um, my family was actually in Pakistan at the time of partition and had to move to Punjab. And that was, in a lot of ways, a really defining experience, but also you know, not something that my grandparents talked a lot about. The only direct conversation I can recall as a kid was interviewing my grandfather for, I think, like a book report type thing. And I didn't really understand what it meant to have to pick up an entire life and move without warning, without a lot of support, and primarily based on decisions that were made by a ruling group. And I do think that even though in the U.S. today there is not formal rule, of course, in place, we are living in a majority white country with representation that is majority white as well. And so that has a massive role on or influence on how things evolve and develop. And the sort of catch-22 for communities of color that are not black is where do we fall? And who are we aligned with? And 
I think that is changing. I hope it's changing, but it's a complex thing to unpack um, just where we stand. How do you feel about that spectrum? So one thing that really stands out to me about this is the fact that we think about two layers and interacting dynamics. And that is a our parents, immigrant stories and whatever experiences, painful, joyful came about and how that influences and interacts with our experiences as their children being raised by them and now living our own lives in this society. But I think what's missing is the top layer that we actually sometimes don't touch on as widely because we're just trying to deal with like this first with our parents is that our grandparents were often part of this era that went through the country's partition. And the influence of what was happening there has to be incredible, right? So like you're talking about a group of people where they were displaced in whatever way, whether it's mental, physical, and they are displaced from what they know as their country or home, uh, their norms, and then they're asked to move um, that, and then they have children, and those children then again move and are displaced. So all of this is when they're going through displacement, you're probably just trying to survive, and if that means at the cost of following the majority, whoever is sort of ruling supreme at the time, you might do that and be okay with inconveniencing yourself a little bit for the sake of just being able to get by. We've talked a lot about this, but there's a lot of an impression from older immigrant generations in the brown community that are like, we should just be grateful for what we have. We're not the target here. We need to just put our heads down and do the work and everything will work out. It'll be fine. And I think that's a very different narrative from what our generation is trying to advocate for, which is that we do have a role to play. And in fact, it's not on the side of oppression and it's not silence. It's a very active and participation focused role to try and change the narrative and use our relative privilege to do that. We can't just ignore it. Definitely. And I feel like that's some of the tension that we are experiencing as Indian Americans of this generation. And if especially you're like first or second generation, you're trying to explain to your parents why you feel this call to action to participate in the conversation that's going on in the country right now and where we might be starting to sense the sort of injustice of realizing where we've moved to this land and there is this off dynamic obviously I'm grossly undermining but this dynamic of I feel like I'm now the colonized um I didn't think that we were coming here to be colonized and so I think you know even just kind of thinking back to our childhood um I'm curious like how did you experience this feeling of growing up in a country where you thought you were perhaps part of the colonizers until you realized you weren't definitely I think one, I won't say good outcome, but changed outcome is that now everyone knows about Delaware County, Pennsylvania <laughs> with the election. Everyone knows about Delco, and that is where I grew up. Um, and for those of you that maybe weren't paying as much attention to Pennsylvania over the last couple of days, Delaware County 
uh, recently went blue for the first time, uh, but it, the neighboring county is Chester County, which is actually where I went to school. It's where the majority of my friends lived, and it's a very, very um, conservative part of the state. And by conservative, that also means very, very white. And so growing up, I thought I was white too in all of the ways that you know, I could understand what it meant to feel accepted. I loved hearing, I forget that you're Indian or you're the prettiest Indian person I know. Uh, Cause I, that was acceptance to me. I felt badge of honor. I, I'm hiding it well enough. I'm not fulfilling all of these stereotypes that I know people think about me. I'm different. I have to say I've been there and it's really sad when we look back and think, why did I feel that way? I think I achieved the goal, which you could argue is that good or bad, but it really was something that I thought a lot about, but I didn't necessarily know why I felt those things. It was sort of just impressed upon you that trying to assimilate, not be recognized for things that made you different, not having the weird lunch at school, not wearing anything that would give anything away, not wanting to take off days of school for different holidays that no one else was celebrating. All of those things were things that I was more than happy to just give up. Yeah, but then you wonder who was telling us to change, right? So it has to be an invisible, you can't really touch it, but you definitely know it's their situation. It's literally like the ending of Sixth Sense, you're like, it was there all along, the pressure to be colonized. And it it's not coming from our parents, so it's certainly coming from us and the world we're interacting with. And sometimes unintentionally. I'm sure people growing up, when they commented on our lunches or something, they didn't really mean to say and have the impact that it ended up having. But now that's where we are. Yeah. Well, and God forbid you ask someone else about something that everyone else knows about. Like, what is that? Oh, it's peanut butter. You've never had peanut butter before? <laughs> what are your parents feeding? You know, there's there's all of these implicit ways in which people show you and tell you that you're different and that you don't fit in. And it's it's hard to continue to try and highlight those things as a kid when, you know, you're just trying to fit in the same as everyone else. The problem is you didn't you know, get the same manual <laughs> that everyone else seems to have read at times. So you you pick up on that type of stuff really easily. Yeah, you can't underestimate how much the evolutionary desire to be fitting into a social group is, especially when you're young. But that being said, now when you look at it, when did you have that moment or looking back that experience of, oh shit well I'm not a white chick I might be different um well I think it's also important that when we're saying fit in and assimilate we're talking about white culture not American culture and those two things have become synonymous when you think about someone saying oh you you have really good English or you sound white what that means is so frustrating for me because I am who I am and I sound the way that I sound and so if we're just going based on that I sound Indian American that's who I am so I think there's a lot to unpack there with just the vocabulary we use to describe 
where we're fitting in and what we're trying to assimilate to. But yeah, I mean, you if you just looked a little bit harder, it wasn't that hard to see that you actually weren't. It was really just about repressing that <laughs> and those signs because you know, there were a lot of really seminal moments where you realized, oh yeah, I'm, I'm not actually like everyone else. And I distinctly remember I was um, in elementary school when 9-11 happened. And of course that was a really, really transformational moment for a lot of people. But I remember, you know, getting warnings and cautions from my family on how we might potentially be perceived and an innocent version of that was that you know we would go on vacation and I would always say like oh yeah we had to go early because my dad gets stopped and taken out of the line every time like haha he's he's a bigger guy and (laughs) that's just how things are and for the people I was sharing that with who were overwhelmingly white it was like they couldn't believe it that had never happened to them. And I was like, hmm, okay, noted. That's part of our every time we travel experience. And that's a part of your never have I ever experienced this. So there are moments there. You just had to look for them. They're everywhere. Yeah. And for me, this has been a collection of moments of where I might be in a group of people and I think, hey, no one can tell that I'm Indian. It looks like it's working. And suddenly someone will ask a question about you being Indian. And in that moment, you feel so exposed. You're like, fuck, they found out. And sometimes it can be just casual questions like, um, tell me about Diwali or um, what do you eat at dinner? Oh, I love roti. But it could also be deeper, like arranged marriage and what your family's position is. Um, Rape in India, which the head of my office once asked me while I was working and you just feel like it's deeply intimate, right? To talk about that with people casually. Um, and just to be clear, I don't, I'm not bothered by that question. If you know me, I think that's what I realized. Like when people are like, where are you from? I'm like, that's fine for to ask me. But if you don't know me, then you should probably think a little bit and take the time to understand how to ask such questions to people that you are not familiar with. But otherwise it's fine. But it's still, for a long time, it took me, um, moments to feel comfortable answering that question because I myself was so insecure about being Indian. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's really just about getting comfortable with who you are and finding a good balance between the culture that you're in, the society that you're in, trying to find your place, but not minimize parts of yourself that are ultimately who you are. And I think that that's a really hard thing to do in a country and a culture that's constantly sending you signals that that's not what you should be doing. I think, unfortunately, the election is a really visceral example of that. Um, And what we're seeing in terms of the amount of people who ultimately are voting to say, you don't belong, You're, you're not valued, you should be just trying to fit in and not making issues for us. So, you you're trying to navigate this but it's hard because of the again sort of descendants or ongoing impact of the history of where we're coming from that for so long that has been the dominant narrative the dominant culture and so your natural instinct is to just hop over and align with that but 
surprise, (laughs) you're actually not as accepted as you think you are. And the more that we're able to recognize that and talk about it, the more productive conversations that we can ultimately have about establishing equity rather than just focusing on assimilating. Yeah, and we're talking about the impact we feel as Indians growing up in America, but also it's really interesting to see how this plays a part when you're in India itself as well. And it's this concept that we're kind of circling around, which is the worship of the white male or female, but basically this reverence and desire to be a part of that affinity for that culture. So this really showed up to me when we went to India. And when I say we, it's my now fiance and I who went to visit my parents so that they could meet and see what's the dealio. And when we were there, it's like us three brown people, uh, brown people and him who is he's Caucasian looking and people thought we were basically with like Brad Pitt. Like we were constantly getting stared at, stopped for pictures. Like they were treating me like his talent manager, which I'm like, dude, like, no, actually, if you're asking, you can't take a picture with him. Um, And so it was so unique to see people were like talking to him more. I was the one who could speak Hindi or Telugu and people were still looking at him when they put the bill down or when they wanted some information. So that already was kind of creating some dissonance for me. But then also we were our trip overlapped with Ivanka Trump's visit to Hyderabad for this business conference. And they had cleaned that shit up in Hyderabad. And there was actually a lot of lashback we were seeing in the newspapers and media of local residents complaining that, hey, when we're here, why aren't you fixing the potholes and all the things that you're supposed to do as a government? But the minute Ivanka's coming over, you're like, let's clean up and make sure everything's tidy. First of all, all I heard from that story was that you and Ivanka Trump went on a trip together to India. And that sounds like a very interesting experience. Um, I think it's it's implicit and it's explicit. And I think the harder things to overcome are the implicit worship. Like, why is it that we think that certain versions of things are the best or certain people are better than others, even if they're very similar? Those are the things that I think are harder to unpack that are harder to name the easier things and the eye roll moments are when someone who is not brown tells you about something that is so central to our culture and community it's like hey have you ever tried turmeric in a latte mm-hmm yeah yes I, I have in fact or I have actually added ginger into tea before because that's how it's made (laughs) and that those moments I think are much easier to name like why I've never taken a yoga class with someone who's Indian just bothers me so much or the namaste in bed shirts it's not actually how the word is said you know there's moments like that where you're like well this is this is the symptom But the root of that is so much deeper that we're trying to distance ourselves from all these things that are ethnic or exotic. And for white people, as soon as that distance occurs, they swoop and they claim it. And I think that's what we're also trying to better understand is how do we reclaim some of that for ourselves? Because again, it's it's just an outcome of this entire 
sort of system that we're trying to operate in where we're trying to get closer and align ourselves with things that are the majority and aren't controversial. Meanwhile, as soon as we do that, we lose the power and the control that we do have. And I think that's really true with everything that's going on in the U.S. today. These, you know, silly things like yoga and spices and types of food are are what they are, but they're metaphors for how we treat larger things as well. So what I hear is honestly a clusterfuck of confusion because... First of all, as Indians, if you've noticed, there's this tendency to not really self-promote. We often don't go, look, I did a thing. Um, The one thing that I sometimes hear about is the zero and the fact that we invented it, but also like, is that the hill we want to die on? Zero. Um, And so the other piece of it, though, on the flip side is sort of the rage you described, where I feel really passionately and frustrated that we don't get credit for the things that really come from our country and our cultures. Um, look at, for example, Neutrogena's new line of skincare, which uses turmeric, but it doesn't make any nod to the Asian cultures that use it like India or Japan. And honestly, that is like one of a million things that I can talk about. I could list coconut oil, yoga, ginger, ashwagandha, Anything from anthropology and urban outfitters, I challenge you to play a game of where is this made in and you will often find Philippines, Vietnam, Pakistan, India or Thailand. Um, The concepts you see at Burning Man or Coachella, um, what you see in movies that conveniently use Indian culture for the growth like Eat, Pray, Love. I mean, these are all things that lift a lot of the Indian cultural influences, but do it in a way that's sort of convenient for them. But then it's hard to ignore that there's this gap, right? Like we won't do the claiming ourselves as Indians. So other people lean in and do it when they discover. But for some reason, we then get conflicted whether we want to eagerly participate in the conversation. Maybe we'll get pissed. Like, why didn't I do it first? But there is this hesitancy on whether we want to align outright with that item. So For example, like I definitely avoided yoga for a really long time um, because I just felt like it would be so stereotypical for me to do yoga. Like, come on, could I be any more predictable? And I remember once getting in an Uber in San Francisco and I had a yoga mat with me for a sound meditation later. It's very San Francisco. Um, And the Uber driver asked me like what that yoga mat was for. And I was kind of like... Let's play this game. Um, what do you think it is for? And he's like, well, I pretty much guessed it was yoga because, I mean, you're Indian. And I was like, OK, um, yeah. But at the same time, you know, I actually am really ashamed of doing yoga because as an Indian person, I feel even more pressure to go represent it in a class. Um, I also just suck at it. So it's also like adding insult to injury. I'm an embarrassment to my ancestors. But anyway, this is basically this confusion. I feel like we're just circling around. It's definitely confusing. I felt the same way about yoga, too. I just avoided it because I didn't want to double down on the stereotype. And frankly, I didn't want to 
give my money to people who like went to India for two weeks and got a certification and now they're they're the enlightened people and I'm the idiot so it just was a hard thing and that again is just one example of the complexity of I think what we're not always super comfortable talking about as a community like why does that frustrate us and and where is that happening right now where there still are opportunities for us to intervene and not just let it pass us by before there's you know some national chain of food fast food like an Indian Chipotle and it's owned by a couple of white dudes and we missed the opportunity where is that happening right now and I think it's not just about the the money that's generated from those industries it's also about social capital and what are prescient social issues that are happening right now where we have that opportunity too and we can't just let ourselves be the silent enablers but rather recognizing what we have in terms of our relative power that we can dedicate and align to some of these things that are going on in America today and learn how we can use it to ultimately create more equity in the the world that we want to live in and not just sit by and let it let it happen or say this isn't our fight or this isn't our issue there's a process i mean it sounds like now we haven't mastered it but we're getting better and a large part of maybe what fueled us to get here is a phase where we went through anger so i mean i, I think it's safe to say you and i are we're a little angry about some of the things that we started to see as hey i thought this was part of Indian culture, but now I see it being taken away, like, ah, where does this sit? And, um, you know, one of the movies that actually, you're gonna laugh at me, but uh, the one that I think of is this one from Amy Schumer, I Feel Pretty. It's not her best work, but I liked it. And there's this one line at the end, she talks about how babies are born into the world. They don't really think about their bodies the way we do now. They're just with like bellies hanging out, happy. And then they basically learn all these things that are wrong with them and how they should, could look. And then there's this whole journey of then unlearning all of that and having a better relationship of body positivity. And the reason I brought that up is aside from my love of Amy Schumer, I just thought that was such a fantastic line for even something like this, where we're born probably never questioning, like if you just were in a room as a brown person, you would always be like, this is normal. But then when we go to a different place, especially if people look different, like you start to question. And so this whole period, like if you can come back and finish that circle and feel comfortable with yourself, it's really a beautiful thing to embrace both identities. lot about how all of that unlearning is something we have to do at an individual level, at a community level, at a generational level. We're all having different experiences, but sometimes I think a lot about how that has impacted decisions I've made. What does that look like for you? How has that unlearning process influenced choices that you've made that have led you to where you are? Oh, dude, solid question. Um, honestly, like to start with a what will seem like a more dramatic example, but it's reality is 
the summer of 2020 when the George Floyd murder happened and we found out about the Asian American officer who was participating in that. And I think a lot of Asian Americans started to question and were outraged by the association that we can, as a community, sometimes put um, with the white community and this affinity and desire to be a part of it. Um, And it set me about on this path. I mean, like, needless to say, a lot of us were introspecting from this, what was happening. And um, it made me reflect on both trivial and more deeper things like honestly like beauty um you know where have I thought like certain people were attractive or whether I accepted my own attractiveness because I'm dark brown um the food that I eat and allow myself to eat in public um the decoration that I surround like the images and representation I have in my home on my tv screen the books I read the lifestyle I live um And honestly, the biggest one for me was my relationship with my fiance and I. And I mean, you're having all these conversations this summer, especially about white privilege and how this has played a part in our lives and where do we play a role and responsibility in being anti-racist. And I was like, I'm just going to say it bluntly. I was just like, holy shit. I mean, my fiance, he's Russian American. He looks white. And I'm brown. So what does that mean about our family? Am I with him because he's white or because I love him? And we've talked about this. So spoiler alert, we're very much in love and for the right reasons. But I did have to go along a path of understanding, like, was this anything to do with my desire to belong or seek validation or even safety? Like the feeling of walking around with a tall white male um, next to me. And I think we had a lot of interesting conversations about how does that play a dynamic? And he had his own things that he was actually interestingly conscious of. But um, it's it's hard to not challenge white male privilege when I'm also with a white male. Um, and so there was a lot of like, ooh, what does this mean moments um, about our own household? Oh, you're probably like, do I really or do I like this because I've been socialized to think that this is how I fit in? And you might really like it, but you might also think, oh, well, I just bought this because everyone around me had it. And it turns out everyone around me is white. And so do is that my decision or is it not? And I think we're just there's an appropriate level of questioning and introspection to do there, but you can also drive yourself into a downward spiral too. So that's why I think it's so important that you have people around you helping you make sense of all of that. It's really important to have a community of people who are helping you do that unlearning and relearning new things. And I didn't have that for a really long time. I didn't see the value of it until I was out of college that it was not only just okay for me to have brown friends, but that it was actually essential for me to make progress in understanding who I am and and what I need and what I value. And before, I, I didn't think it was necessary. I didn't really see why it would be valuable. I had friends. I had people who supported me, but it's different. And for me, I recognized that and wanted to more intentionally invest in that. And everyone has a different different way of going through it. But for me, that learning, unlearning, relearning process, I needed people to help me. That is so true. And I know we've 
talked about one side of this, right? Where it's you see your own culture being appropriated. Um, I remember one seeing at a bar in um, Hayes Valley, San Francisco, where there is these there were these two women who are white in very traditional Mayan clothing selling tacos. And I like did not know how to feel about that. Um, and then I wondered, well, could people argue if I was selling pasta in a restaurant that I hypothetically opened um, coming 2021? Um, I was wondering, would people think then, hey, why are you selling pasta, an Italian dish? Am I appropriating? So I ask this because in the definition that I looked up, there was a second definition for this colonization, which was appropriating a place or domain for one's own use. And it got me thinking, could white people argue that we're coming to colonize them? I think there was probably a time in my life where I would have said, yeah, like, don't be too controversial. Don't call them out. Don't make them feel bad because we need every ounce of goodwill that we can possibly get. But the thing that I didn't understand and I'm still trying to understand better is that you can't decouple this idea of colonization from power. And it's not possible to reverse the narrative and say, we are coming to colonize them or you know, reverse racism is a real thing. If you don't consider the power dynamic And as long as brown people and black people are not in power in America, we are not capable of colonizing white people. And power doesn't just mean volume of numbers. It means having control and influence over the systems that dictate everything about how our lives evolve, both from a political perspective, from a socioeconomic perspective, from just social and cultural norms, a norm in and of itself means that it's what people expect because it's common and it's very present in their experience. And you just can't say that about our experiences. Like we've talked about the one show that we got to watch or the one candidate that we now get to see. So that in and of itself says everything we need to be able to talk about when people ask that question is that that the answer to that is it's not possible today it's not possible if you're not in power and wielding power and now in the past and for the foreseeable future that power will be with white people in america and it's not to say that that's fundamentally wrong or bad we want equity. We want a fair representation of our experience and our needs. Um, And so that's what we're advocating for. It's not dominance or a reversal of everything that has happened. Although for Black Americans, I would say that they have a lot more history driving that um, for them than, than we do necessarily. But We want equity, and that's ultimately not reversing what has happened. It's just about improving and progressing forward, but together. Um, So I don't know. That doesn't, I don't really buy that question when people ask it. I understand where it's coming from, but I think it's a little bit, it's missing the, the fundamental piece of the puzzle, which is around the power dynamic in America. 
the commonalities I heard there too are how these different groups come to America and sometimes on very unique terms. And so when you look at the black community, it was by force. It is probably one of the ugliest pasts we have in this country. Um, other immigrant groups were brought along. Similarly, when you think about the Chinese Railroad, um, even with voluntary coming over, like our Indian community, a lot of it was immigration that you might have applied for income. But whatever background that was, it was ultimately with the objective that either forcibly or voluntarily you will participate for the success of this country. But then when everyone turns around and they're like, hey, we got here, so let's share the wealth. It's like, "Uh, no, I'm sorry. When did we decide we would share our cake? And the reason why I'm bringing up this kind of broad historical piece is that there is a very real lesson we talked about a lot, especially this summer, of history repeating itself. And specifically, as an Indian American, I was lucky that my parents sat me down and helped, made me learn a lot of Indian history. And one of the examples, this will seem very dramatic, but I promise I'm going somewhere with this. One of the stories they taught me about was this incident that happened in the 20 years kind of leading up to independence in India was the Jallianwala Bagh massacre that took place in Amritsar, Punjab. And essentially what happened is that there was this rule that was sent out by the British colonizers that um, people could not meet and collect because they were kind of afraid of like the people coming together and what they were doing pre-independence that sentiment was brewing um but this wasn't really widely disseminated and many villages um did not get the message so there was this group of villagers who came together to celebrate a festival they wanted to protest peacefully um the deaths of or sorry the deportation of two national leaders um and when that happened the british officers freaked out and one of them ordered to fire at all the unarmed indian civilians at that peaceful protest and they killed almost 400 people and injured 1200 plus people and the reason again that i bring this up is because If you think about that, it kind of sounds familiar to what was just happening in June, July, August. When you see all these incidents of people coming together and congregating over a very human thing, which is equality, equity, and just treating people like human beings. Um, But it makes sense to me why now colonizers see race and diversity as a law and order conversation. I mean, this came up in both the VP and presidential debates where the law and order came up as a response to race. And it so for this reason, it blows my mind when Indians are hesitant to align themselves and support our black community. To me, these are our sisters and brothers who are in this fight for equality just like we were with our own colonizers in india um we have literally gone through the same thing yeah it's it's complicated and i think you know i my hope is that not everyone really needs that level of a story or an experience in their history to feel empathy and to feel energy around supporting this cause because we it's it's so much more fundamentally human than that but like you said this history is all recent history and so the fact that we have those examples from india and from the past century and we're still 
not ready to fully commit, I think is interesting. I know that there are reasons for that. Like I said earlier, like we're here, just keep your heads down. Don't do anything controversial. And then there's the other side of that that is, you know, we've seen what can happen if we don't. If we don't stand up and and play an active role, we've seen how those movements and things can just pass us by. And what we also have, I think, in the U.S. that we didn't is there's so many um, layers to this and there's the relative power and privilege that we do have as a community. There is a reason why there are a lot of brown CEOs of huge companies and there aren't a lot of black CEOs. We have some access to this power structure and this power dynamic and it's so important that we use it in order to draw upon this idea of creating more equity and creating that shift. While we don't have that power absolutely, we absolutely have some and I think it's really important that we recognize that along this learning and unlearning journey like I'll I feel more in control of what I can offer and what I do have to contribute not only just in the Black Lives Matter cause and activism but in a lot of ways you know you're you're constantly trying to push the envelope and create more opportunity and it's so important that we make sure we're bringing people along with us who might not have the opportunity otherwise. And specifically talking about this happening in political context, I know Kamala is a very complex story and people feel a lot of different ways about her. But one thing that she has said constantly about her position and why she evolved her career in the way she did was that she wanted to be on the other side of the door opening it. Um, she didn't necessarily take the the progressive civil rights activist stance that her parents did, but she wanted to be there on the other side, being ready and willing to open the door for people when they got the opportunity. Totally. I mean, I think that's something that as we talk about our own community, I feel like we are uniquely positioned to help play a role and take agency and being a part of the solution and the steps we're taking starting this year, hopefully even before that. Because fortunately or unfortunately, we can connect over these common experiences of having been colonized, having been questionably taken over non-consensually, having very similar stories of independence. And so this should actually give us more empathy, right? Um, But I know when you and I talked about even this episode, we were like, hey, like, should we take space for this conversation when there are conversations going on there outside that might actually need more priority? And should we use this platform to have this conversation? And um, so when you think about that, how do you feel about whether we can process this and still participate in what the world needs right now? I think the answer has to be yes. I don't really see, even if it's a selfish yes, around how you can you can see how the success of this movement and the momentum behind it will benefit you individually. That's a that's sometimes where it starts is seeing what's in it for me if I do this. But hopefully, it grows to a point where you see the broader implications of what 
creating a more fair system that we can all operate in ultimately does for all of us. And I hope that people who are not from communities of color, white people see that too. There is benefit for all of us in making sure that we have a more equitable environment that we can all trust and live in ultimately. So you, it has to be yes. The answer to that has to be yes. And I think it's particularly important that it's yes for the Brown community because this is also our fight and we need to make sure that we don't just let it pass us by, but we're offering our voices, our dollars, our platforms, our experiences in order to create the change that that we all want to see. Absolutely. And by having conversations like this, I'm hoping that we can show up more for each other, realizing what, again, unique perspective that we can bring. Um, when I think of the black community, I only feel gratitude. I mean, growing up, it was really hard to watch anything that looked like me or us, our family. And so we would watch Fresh Prince and feel like we saw glimmers of our family and their jokes and dynamics and values. Um, Many of the people that I love and have made me feel so loved and belonging is the black community. Um, Even when it comes, I mean, aside from friends, but also in companies, I've worked for some companies in very small towns of America where I didn't see anyone who is Asian, let alone South Asian. And it was the black community that always invited me to meetings um, for the affinity groups because they just knew, like I didn't even ask um, that I'd maybe want a place where people look like me. So I feel like it's my duty to show up for those that have showed up for me um, all out of love. I think this is a whole conversation in and of itself, but I did the very stereotypical thing over the last couple of months and decided to read the autobiography of Malcolm X. And there's a lot in there. But one of the things he talks so much about is about collective power. And if different communities, and he was particularly talking about black communities all over the world, were able to unify and represent their needs and desires together, how much power that would ultimately have. And I think that's a really important thing for us to think about when we're sort of waffling on do we or don't we get involved is that collectively we have so much more advocacy that we can lend and power that we can wield to right these scales a little bit rather than trying to just do it on our own and say well we have our own issues as a community so how could we possibly dedicate some of that to another that's such the wrong attitude in my opinion there is nuance and there are individual things that need to be addressed but there's so much more that we have in common than we do that that keeps us separate I adore that and I thought it was interesting that you said a stereotypical experience of reading Malcolm X because honestly a lot of people can do book clubs which we definitely saw in this summer of hey race is happening let's start a book club but how many of those people actually showed up in the end of the day to the polls? Um, we saw the numbers said otherwise, right? So a summer of book clubs and listening uh, might not have affected the change we needed to see. Um, and 
one thing that I think of sometimes in our in my like kind of reflections of this topic is when I was about 16 or 17, I was leaving um, an Indian dance with my friend who is Gujarati. And there were these group of guys who started to pick a fight because they were Punjabi. And so they kept calling him Guju, which is sort of a not a great term to call someone out for being Gujarati. And luckily, both parties just dropped it. It was safe by the end of it. But afterwards, I was thinking, it is so funny to see us divide ourselves in this way. And I was not having an MLK moment at that age, but I basically was thinking, yo, if anyone white or anyone just not Indian saw us, they'd think, here's a brown Indian person or Pakistani person. They're not going to think you are from this village and this region of this specific hemisphere of India, right? So I'm not saying that we can't be proud of where we come from in India, but what I'm saying is in these moments where it's important for us to come together, it really serves our best interest to be productive about those differences. Totally. I think that's sort of my takeaway, so to speak, is that as we're, one, just acknowledging the environment that we have all been socialized in and we've grown up in, how does that make us feel? Recognizing that and figuring out, am I okay with that? What can I do to change it? What do I need to go learn and have access to within my community? What do I need to question about my assumptions to develop a bit more of a a point of view that you own, that you feel confident in? And then what do you ultimately do with that? What do you do with that recognition and that power? And that as a really compressed, you know, journey, I think we're all going through cycles of over and over and over again. And for me, I'm just grateful that it's happening and that it's getting channeled hopefully into really productive things, but it's not over. (laughs) It's not done just when you feel a little bit better or you see an outcome that you helped to influence come to be. It's ongoing. And I know that sounds maybe a little daunting or frustrating, but there's so much upside to continuing that process that on some days it's exhausting and defeating, like maybe having a breakdown 24 hours after the election, like I did, or, you know, f- half an hour after that, you feel a little bit of light and a bit of hope and levity about what we can do if we can help collectively harness that power and influence. So you go through cycles, they're not ending anytime soon, but there's so much potential for what could come if we commit to continuing the pursuit of unlearning all of this and and using that for better. So my hope is that for me individually, I just keep on going. (laughs) And it's so helpful to have a community around you that is committed to doing that too, because you can't do it alone. So now we come to the chip chip round, which as you know, is rapid fire style. Great. Getting put on the spot, definitely my favorite thing. (laughs) Oh, you got this. Don't worry. Um, So question number one, what is your favorite way of making chai? Good question. Depends on how much time I have in the morning. If I go full, my ancestors would be proud of me or 
rapid fire bought it from a store and I'm pouring it out into a mug so I won't divulge my secret but it varies <laughs> I'm intrigued um what was the best pickup line you've ever received I'll say so offensive I couldn't believe it or just no effort was used was just you look like a caramel latte like what does that even mean that's not good it's not catchy it doesn't say anything about effort I would say the best one I thought I was getting which turned out to be to donate to something on uh walking to work was like you know who you look like and I was like immediately hooked because I wanted the validation and then they just told me I looked like someone who donated to their cause I was like dang that's good (laughs) (laughs) I think that's something you can definitely use now (laughs) next if you had to be a shameless groupie, which band or artist would it be with? I am a shameless groupie, and I don't. This is not a good answer, I guess. But anyone who knows me knows I knows I love John Mayer. And no, at the time Nisha. last year, I know it's bad. I know it's bad, but I do. And I went and saw him many times in the back half of last year and at the time people told me I was crazy but jokes on them because we're not ever going to concerts again so I got I got it in while I could. <laughs> this was uh, very eye-opening for me uh, Nisha. Um, next what is an Indian experience you regret not continuing or doing? Um, I talked to my mom about this recently she used to teach me Hindi and I'm I hated it and going to India earlier this year I just never more regretted not being able to actually speak Hindi and I have attempted to try and learn since I can understand a good amount but you know kids don't want to do anything cool or seems like it's popular and I just wish she had been a little more typical Indian parent and just forced it on me rather than letting me give up (laughs) I don't think you're alone Um, Last question. Tomorrow, there's a vaccine for COVID. Everyone's taken it. It's all over. What is the first thing you do when you go out and rejoin society? You know, I think I'll do something really exciting, which is go get a facial. (laughs) Get rid of all the endless trauma that has happened to my face as a result of mask knee um so yeah i think that would be it really i'm not jumping to still get out and go like get on a plane i don't know i think it will take me a little longer but going on a walk without a mask that that would be pretty cool too i mean i don't think i could have done this and gone where i could have with anyone else but you and so i thank you so much for that nisha thank you for sharing this space with me I'm so grateful we had the opportunity to do this. We're processing live what has happened and what is happening. Maybe while we've been recording, we have a new president. Who knows? But this was so much fun. Um, And thank you for providing this platform for us to have these conversations. It's so, so important.